Hey, listeners, before we get into today's podcast, I just first of all want to say thank you. Uh, This has been five years of podcasting for us, and I want to say thank you to those who have been here five years listening to us and those who are this is your first time listening. Um, It's been a a phenomenal journey and a lot of fun, and I, I can't think of how else I would like to spend the next five years other than continuing to podcast and bring hopefully bring you guys some great shows and great interviews. Um, with that being said, I want to thank today's sponsors, first of which is Pretentious Pickles, um, our good friends at Pretentious Pickles, located right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts on 190 Water Street, um, have a huge variety of pickled items for your um, consumption. There's pickled beets, Brussels sprouts, carrots, mushrooms, cucumbers, you name it, they've put it in a jar and pickled it. They make a phenomenal product and for the second year in a row have been nominated I'm sorry, not nominated, one uh, best gourmet shop in the South Shore, Massachusetts area. So congratulations to Lorraine and everyone at Pretentious Pickle Company. And if you can't make it to their store, you can stop by www.pretentiouspickle.com and you can place an order online. They'll ship it right to you. Um, it's if, if you're into pickles, you should definitely check that out. And today's second sponsor is Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation of 2021. Best of all, using Omeo saves you time and money. That's a win-win in our books. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com, that is O-M-I-O.com, and use the code OMEO5 at checkout. Valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transportation. It's just the pick-me-up 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Inebriites. This is Andy, the Art Podcast, and I am joined today by Elias Rodriguez. Did I get that right? That's Rodriguez. Sorry, Rodriguez. Sorry, I was I, I was kind of like going between the two, and I should have asked yeah, ahead I of time. Said but... that beforehand, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, so uh, that's my fault. I'm terrible with names, but uh, I so I apologize. Um, uh, joining us today, and he's the author of uh, "All the Water I Have Seen Is Running," uh, which is a new book. Came out was it last month? Last week, maybe. Oh, last week. So it's even. Oh, I guess that was last month. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. What? Whenever June twenty second was. Yeah, last month, last week, whichever. Um. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Also, thank you to you know my digital listener, whoever you are. So happy to be talking (laughs) to you. Um. So tell us a little bit about the book and um, you know how. So this is your first. Uh, I would screw these up. First fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is my first book of fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book, uh, just as a brief description of the plot, um, the book basically tells the story of a young man, Daniel, who when he is in high school, is in love with um, a girl, Aubrey. And then, 
you know, he's growing up in this North Florida town that he desperately wants to get out of because of the experiences of racism and poverty. And also he's just a teenager and teenagers are bored in small towns mm-hmm. and they think that they'll be able to do other things in big towns. And inevitably he grows up and gets to live in a big city, New York, and he does make some changes, but also finds that it's quite alienating and then <clears throat> comes back home after Aubrey has passed away um, and is sort of forced to reckon with what this place that he desperately wanted to and succeeded in running away from meant to him. He's sort of forced to confront the ways in which it still shapes him. And along the way, he's also searching for understandings of how he came to be who he is. So this means he's talking to his mother a lot. He himself is a Jamaican immigrant and is trying to hear like who his people were and is trying to understand how they arrived where they were in the world. And, and much of the story is that it's a journey from yeah, wanting to escape a place to wanting to try to come to feel settled in who you are and in the ways that history has shaped you. Do you think that's like a natural part of growing up where, you know, I remember as a kid, I wanted to get out of my, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts, small suburban town. You know, there's a skate park, but that was about it for like kids. And, you know, you you were always like, oh, you know, when I'm older, I'm going to do this. So I'm going to do that. So do you think that's like a natural progression for kids to kind of like want to shed that childhood thing by just getting away? Okay, I used to think this, and I think it's mostly natural. Then I've met some people who were like, I was really happy in high school and really happy with my family. And I want to hang out with my family all the time. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) This is so fucking crazy to me. And not people who are like, you know, I was really happy and I was living in this really cool place, London, and we were very rich and everything was good. It's like, yeah, I was really happy in my hometown in South Georgia. And it's like, what the fuck? I, I literally don't understand. Huh. Um, but aside from those people who I think, you know, are a minority and who ultimately I just fundamentally don't understand, I do think it's a really natural part of growing up. I mean, I think this is a big thing about being a teenager. I mean, one of the strange things about Florida is that you can get your driver's license quite early, um, depending on where you live. So yeah, depending on where you live, what your family does, you might be able to get a driver's license as young as 14 if you're sort of like working on a farm, you know, but otherwise, you know, permit at 15, driving at 16. And in Florida, North Florida in particular, where I'm from, where the book is set, uh, Flagler County specifically, which is between Jacksonville and Orlando so it's like you know a nowhere place between two nowhere cities in some ways I mean places that I really like but that like the rest of the world like if you had to point out Jacksonville on a map everybody would be like where the fuck is that (laughs) you know yeah yeah. Um, but I do think that it's really normal for a lot of people because it's you know you're like stuck in a lot of ways you can't really do anything except what your parents are able to let you do because they have the car until you're you know 15 and you're suddenly like oh my god i'm gonna do whatever it is that i want you know and yeah and you and your friends you know you get the car and you're like okay we can go anywhere and then you're like oh fuck we have no money <laughs> you know because <laughs> like, you know i mean maybe you know <clears throat> you and your friends work like part-time jobs or whatever you know but you really can't amass that much money i mean i knew folks who are like working under the table in construction and landscaping Um, just through like family connections and even them like they still couldn't actually make that much money even though they were making what was like great money for a high school you know right and uh you don't really have that much shit that you can do and you keep thinking because your world is so small and it's so circumscribed that there's something else out there you know but in my experience you know I like I also moved out of North Florida and then I 
you know, was like, I'm doing like the same shit, you know, I'm like sitting around talking, I'm sitting around eating, I'm sitting around drinking, I go to the beach less, which is terrible, you know, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, it turns out that like, there's actually not that much that I want to do that I wasn't already doing in high school, which is like talking to people being vulnerable, laughing, whatever, you know, occasionally playing like a sport. But otherwise, like, yeah, you have this huge desire to escape kind of because you're like, forcibly put in this position as a young person where you don't have much independence or control. And then when you finally get it, you're like, yeah, this shit's not that different anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Like uh, I was recently, recently dating this girl and uh, her daughter's like 13 and was going through that kind of like, this sucks. I don't get to do what I want kind yeah. of thing. And I'm like, yeah, man, it does. Like you are at that weird stage where you have more and more responsibility and yep. you have more and more like pressure to kind of plan out your life, but you still have no control. Yeah. It's, a, it's just a weird sucky situation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really strange because also, you know, there are young people who do like lots of amazing things and lots of young people who manage to like do things that whatever we all recognize as amazing young activists, what have you, uh, Greta Thunberg, most, you know, most, sure. notably, most famously Malala, what have you. So young people are clearly capable of doing a lot, you know, and then there are young people who are less famous, you know, than the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Malala, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, who are still managing a lot of responsibilities. You know, I mean, yeah. at the least many whatever young folks like have to like get themselves to and from school, have to feed themselves when they get home. I think also schools are really kind of treacherous places in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. you know, and so they're also having to make themselves safe having to make their friends safe. Certainly if you went to the high school that I went to, you'd have to worry about, you know, fights, uh, sexual violence, what have you, you know? Um, so you have to like find these ways to make yourself safe. And if you're lucky, you have friends who you make each other safe with as, in as much as you can. I mean, sometimes what that means is y'all are taking on each other's risks because there's not really like a, a particularly like safe situation for y'all, you right. know? So young folks are like clearly capable of doing much, but doing a lot, but, they're not really taken seriously for that ability. You know, I mean, in some ways it's like, well, whatever, you don't have a job. So there's just not that much that you can do if you're like, you know, whatever, 14 and you don't have a part-time job. But like, even if you do, it's like, no one really takes you seriously anyway, you know? So right. it's, like, it's a really like deeply infantilizing in a way that can be so frustrating. So of course you're like, I'm just going to run away from this place and go somewhere else. And ultimately like you go somewhere else and people are like, yeah, I mean, you're still not the CEO. I still don't, <laughs> you know? So how, how much of this is kind of autobiographical because it seems to like hit on a lot of um, like key points in your own life. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think what I would say is that like, you know, my like autobiography formed like at best, like raw materials, you know, like mm -hmm. the paints that one might buy from a store, but you have to do a lot to paint to sort of, create a landscape, create a portrait, what have you, you know? Um, so for me, I think what this means is, practically speaking, I wrote this book after a good friend of mine passed away um, when I was in my mid-20s, you know? And um, that was really hard for me. It was like the first peer who I had been really close with who passed, you know, which is a kind of hard thing. I'd been to other funerals, but there was something particularly difficult about this feeling that someone had been gone had gone prematurely, you know, someone whom right. I'd expected to be able to see again. And so, and, uh, you know, and I just got really sad, you know, I like watch a lot of TV, but that was really boring to me. 
I was like going to like, you know, my classes. I was a time that was also really fucking boring. I had, you know, a couple part time jobs. Those also bored me talking to friends, also boring. And I just kept having this fantasy of like, you know, I was living in Philly at the time. So I was like, maybe I'll just like go to 30th Street Station and get on like a long distance bus, which is a really strange <laughs> you know desire because buses are like kind of terrible you know it's like yeah i'm gonna spend like 12 hours on a bus and go to like you know detroit like what's the goal here you know um and finally you know at the urging of a lot of friends i started seeing a therapist which was really helpful but unfortunately also more people continued to pass and i sort of like kept confronting loss in a way that had been really hard for me and my therapist was like, you should write about this, you know, in a journal. And I tried and I just couldn't, you know, I like wasn't actually capable of confronting my own relationship to this person who I missed, who I yeah. cared a lot about, who had passed. Um, I wasn't really capable of even like overcoming the fear of the blank page because I was just like, I don't actually want to fucking think about this. I want to avoid this. I want to not deal with this. And so right. in a way, I started writing about someone who was mourning because it was on my mind a lot. You know, I started writing fiction, but I couldn't actually confront this in nonfiction. What this meant was that like a lot of the writing of the book might seem autobiographical, but is actually like quite different from my life, you know, mm -hmm. from my experience because I wasn't actually able to confront it directly. But for me, you know, fiction sort of enabled me to confront what I was feeling at a sort of angle, you know, at a scance. And so in a way I was like, I was able to sort of process and confront and make sense of what mourning is like for somebody who putatively is like me, but who is ultimately very different from me, you know? Right. And so as I kept writing, I started to feel better. And, and for me, I think that like, this is kind of the thing about fiction that's meaningful, you know, which is that it's like, oh yeah, you can do things with fiction that you can't do with nonfiction at right. a sort of personal level. What this meant was like, I, as a person, I couldn't actually confront the losses that I were amounting, you know, mm -hmm. but I could confront a fictional character confronting fictional losses. And that, that helped me get to a place where I could personally deal with my own life. Oh, it's really interesting to kind of, to kind of use that as a type of, I mean, I, I always feel like this is a very common thread in the podcast, how, you know, uh, people create to kind of either cope with, you know, their, their issues or their, their fears or whatever. Um, so I find that like really makes sense to that. You kind of used it as a therapy, but it's not like, you know, it's parallel, but it's not the same. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the main issue is that like, you know, <laughs> if I use fiction as my therapy forever, then it's like, well, either I have to continually be fucked up. So that I <laughs> Or I like, you know, become a like well-adjusted emotional person and I stop writing fiction, you know? Yeah. You know, that that's one of the, uh, there's a, um, oh, there's a British show called Spaced. It's, mm. um, oh, who was in it? Uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. They were, they did uh Shaun of the Dead and it oh, was right. their, their TV show before that. And they had an artist who lived in the basement and he ended up getting in like a happy relationship and then he wasn't able to make art anymore. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, they played it up for a comedic uh, stance, but you know, I feel like that's kind of you see, like it happened in music a lot. There's 
these bands that you know struggle and and work really hard and you know struggle with addiction and their music's amazing and then they get money and they clean up and then their music kind of really tapers off and it's like there's something about that i don't know that that struggle that really makes great art yeah i think this is the weird thing about i mean music people so often talk about the sophomore slump you know where yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that first album is like lit and then you know they like made a lot of money and they went on tour and they found out that everybody loved them and then they put together like hackneyed garbage yeah you know and uh and that makes a lot of sense in a way, you know, if in your personal life, a lot of your music is oriented around this kind of struggling and, and dealing with that struggling. And and then you don't have to struggle anymore. And it's like, well, what the fuck is this? You're just going to write happy music all the time. You know, right. <laughs> like that's not why I wanted to listen to grunge or whatever. Yeah. You know? um, and so it's hard, you know, because it's also like. I mean, in a way, it's like you can't struggle too much because then the music never happens. You know what I mean? There's that. um or you never get found or your life can't continue. Like uh, there was that documentary a while back about a band called Death. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, this black Detroit punk band, or they were punk before like punk existed, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, the music they made is really fascinating and it's really good and it's really ahead of their time. And it's also like, yeah, I mean, their lead singer just died, you know? It's like, ultimately it's like, you actually can't struggle too much, right? Because right. like, then you actually can't make that much music, you know? And it's like a really, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really tough position to be in, I think. It's a really quite dangerous balancing act, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird. It's, and it, I've always said, you know, is it the, you know, what comes first? Do you make art because you have a dark side or do you have a dark side because you kind of live this weird creative, you know, life? And, you know, I don't, I don't, it's, you know, the chicken, you know, which chicken, sorry, which came first, the chicken or egg kind of thing. I, I don't really have an answer, but it, it seems like a lot of people use it to kind of cope in the same way that you did when you were writing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think also, you know, when I, when I'd already like, you know, gotten a publisher, I, by that point, I had started to feel a lot better you know, yeah. uh, that this is a related to what you're saying. So I'd start to feel a lot better. And um, then I would like have to, you know, work on edits for this novel. And I would just have to dwell with this like emotion, you know, because the protagonist is grieving for most of the book, you know? And I was just like, I would start to feel terrible. You know, I'd be like, I feel just like I was like three years ago or two years ago or whatever, however long I had been. But also it feels oddly unjustified because by this point in my life, I had come to feel grateful that I'd known this person instead of like pissed or sad or angry that they had been taken away, you know? Right. Um, so I would just sort of be like thrown back in time when I was editing and then sort of come out of it and be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, <laughs> I feel like this again, you know? And it's, it was really hard. I mean, maybe, yeah, I, I heard, you know, from another friend who's a writer whose work I really like, Mark Anthony Richardson, he wrote this novel, The Year of the Rat, that I think is pretty underread. It's, it's mm-hmm. quite good. Um, he had said this thing to me that was, you know, it's like, well, you know, the emotion makes the art, but it doesn't have to make you, you know, which is a, which was a really, really important thing for me to hear. You know, he was like, yeah, say a prayer, do a chant, whatever you need to do when you're done editing, but like leave the emotions on the page because like, if you want to write this book, more or less, you just have to survive, you know? Right. And uh, yeah, there's something really strange about writing in this way, right? Because it's like, even if, let's say, you had a dark side and that made the art, at some point, if you sort of like 
blunt the edge of that dark side. You know, if things start to get better, the art can also be a kind of gnarly cycle that pulls you back into it if you don't have ways of, yeah, leaving the emotion, yeah. what you need in the art, you know, and not bringing it into the rest of your life. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what you're saying. That's it's probably good advice. <laughs> no, it was yeah. good advice, but yeah, you know, the other issue is like, well, I don't want to be too happy because what am I going to write about? You know, right? Yeah, a good time. <laughs> uh, yeah, we started shooting these um, YouTube videos, which are uh, kind of like to partner with one of our other podcasts, and it's people sampling different cocktails and. They're like, oh, you always get like weird cocktails. And, and I'm like, yeah, no one wants to see someone go, mm, this is delicious. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, go ahead. That's all. Uh, so I, I was just going to um, just kind of segue into something else. So. Um, so now you live in Philly, right? Mike. Mm -hmm. um, do you are you already planning your next book? Is it going to be Philly based or do you kind of like I kind of get the idea of writing about places you lived, it kind of cuts down on some of the research. Like you kind of know what it's like to live there. So to me, that makes a lot of sense. So is that something that you're kind of considering in future projects? I would really like to like write about Philly. <clears throat> the main issue right now is that I can't really see it. You know, I mean, there's something really helpful about memory actually. Right. And that it sort of does that first step of filtration for you. You know, it was really helpful for me to no longer be living in, Flagler County to, to no longer be living in Palm Coast when I was writing that book, because it was like, well, what are the images that I can see clearly? And why are these places? Why do I remember these places this way? And what does this look like? You know, that kind of really helps one give a sense of setting, you know, but also the perspective of the book, like from whose eyes are you seeing this? And how do they see this? You know, um, that's really, really important. I would really like to write about Philly because it's a really strange place. And it's a really interesting place to me. And aside from Flagler County, it's maybe the only place I felt at home, despite having lived in many places as a as a young person as, and as an adult. You know, I mean, I was I was born in Jamaica. I lived in New York. I lived in Florida. I lived in California. I now live in Philly. I also lived, you know, for a year. I did a like teaching gig at a like boarding school in Massachusetts. I've lived a lot of places, you know, yeah. but like I really like Philly, you know, and it's a really interesting and really strange place. But every time I've sat down to write about it. I write too much and too little, you know? So I'm sort of like, I'm obsessing over like how people are walking places, you know? Yeah. Well, you take a left on Lombard, you know, because oh, like, I you want to walk on South because yeah. like South is too busy, you know? And it's like, and so, and so you walk three blocks, you know, or like, you know, it's all this stuff where it's like, what the fuck am I saying here? Nobody wants this, like these directions, you know? Right. Uh, they go to a book for books, you know, and they go to Google maps for their directions, you know? Exactly. And, uh, and so that's, that's one side of things. Like I, I just see too much and I know too much. And on the other side is that I know what everything looks like so well that I'm also not describing anything. You know, I have kind of no perspective because my perspective is perennially changing because every day I go out, I walk, I go to the store, I go to, you know, coffee, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, and um, yeah, then I see things again and every day I see things again, you know, and that's sort of like constantly effacing any sense of like perspective that I might have about this place, which as a person is wonderful. You know, it's like right. I often have this experience of walking down a block and feeling like, oh, I 
I don't know if I've ever seen that before, which is probably not true because it's like, well, I'm often walking the same routes, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's something to be said about the strangeness of the, like what it is about the experience of seeing something in such a way that you feel like you're seeing it for the first time, even if you almost certainly are not seeing it for the first time. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. I was uh, talking with an artist friend of mine who has a gallery just down the street and I live in downtown yeah. Plymouth. Um, and she was talking about like a, a kind of like a courtyard amongst these buildings. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And yeah. I've been down the street a hundred times, if yeah, not yeah. more. And then walking, I'm like, when the hell did that get put there? <laughs> you know, it's, it's so really weird. Strange. Yeah. There, there's like one building that I've like now seen for the first time. I, I can recall like two or three times, you know, where it's like, I'm like walking down, you know, 21st street and I'm like on the opposite side of the street. I'm like, that's really strange looking. I had no idea they had this like weird modernist like courtyard in this building or whatever, yeah. you know? And, and it's like, why, why do I feel like I'm seeing this for the first time? I definitely have seen that before, you know, but that mm -hmm. stuff gets in the way of you, like in a weird way, like having a perspective on a place for me, at least, you know, I think other people are probably better than I am at living somewhere and writing about this place, but I can't do it. I need like a little bit of distance to see the forest for the trees, you know? Cause otherwise it's like, I'll just write about every fucking thing I see every day, you know, right. <laughs> which is like that book's just going to never end, you know? And the only people who are going to dig that are people who live in Philly and right. be like, Oh yeah, that is three blocks. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that when, when uh, it was, I can't remember what show it was, but there was a show on the sci-fi channel that was uh, supposed to be in Massachusetts mm. and they'd be like, Oh, you know, we're in, you know, Weymouth and they'd look out the window and there's a giant bridge and you're like, no, you're not. That is definitely yeah, yeah, not, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah but it doesn't matter to anyone else. Just those of us that live here, you know? Yeah. It's really funny. Cause every once in a while I will like, you know, watch the office and then I will be like, this is definitely not shot in PA. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously shot in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. I've been to Scranton, you know, it just doesn't look like that. You know, it's like, what's up with this like weird deserty, like, you know, like tree. It's like, that shit does not exist in like Northern central PA. You know what I right. mean? Right. It's like one of those really strange things, you know, where I mean, as a person who's like watching that shit, I really love it. Um, but that's only interesting to other people who are just like me, you know, who right, are like right, yeah. interested in the office and have also spent like a weird amount of time in the Scranton PA Greyhound station, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. It, it, Philly is uh, such a cool place. My um, my mother is from uh, Philly originally. So oh, cool. I've spent a fair amount of time down there and actually was planning to get on there last summer during uh, COVID. Uh, have you ever been to the Muter Museum? Oh, yeah. That place is creepy. It I, is uh, very creepy, but very cool. Yeah. I went for the first time and I was like, this is scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I am afraid, you know? I like there. It's really funny, you know, because it's like there are just all those like dead bodies that have all the different whatever you know like things that are so-called like not normal or whatever you right. know, certain things that like make it harder for people to live you know and um yeah it's like you you'll walk around this museum and there will be all these like kids and families and they're like oh this is so cool and i'm like i'm gonna have fucking nightmares it's like, <laughs> you know it's like what's ha like the wall of skulls really fucked me up i was like this i've never seen this before and also why does this place have no explanation of how this man got a collection of 180 skulls? Like yeah. what's going on here? You know, people and just like, it was like skulls? some of them were like really 
like that i re- remember specifically like reading some of like the cards of like who the skulls belong to yeah it, it really started to bother me because some of them are like you know boy 12 years old and i'm like oh jesus like i didn't yeah. like that really kind of yeah hit home, I mean, there's a know? bunch there's a bunch from like also i remember reading like there are a bunch who are like specifically like criminals from eastern europe who had been mm-hmm. like guillotined which is really gnarly and then also a bunch of people who were like in i guess what were then called like asylums or whatever you know yep. like the sort of like what were called insane asylums you know and like it's just sort of like this is gnarly you know like, just a bunch of people who are like totally at the whims of you know in the case of children like adults or in the case of you know people in insane asylums like whoever is running that i don't really know anything about like whatever like 19th century like eastern european insane asylums you know yeah. but, like, i'm yeah. sure they weren't a nice place yeah, I can't yeah. imagine. You know, I've seen the crown, you know, <laughs> England, I guess, not Eastern Europe. Yeah. I know, you know. Um, so let me ask you for a bit of advice. I am typically a visual artist, but yeah. I recently started writing. It has always been a challenge for me. I, I have. I'm going to say it's undiagnosed, but in talking to other people, I may just have never been informed that I was dyslexic. So it's a bit of a struggle, but the thing that I'm struggling with the most is writing dialogue from a female perspective. Hmm. Do you, was that something that you had to do in your book? Did have you done that before? Is that a struggle? Like just writing from someone else's perspective that is completely different than from your own? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> I think I have a bunch of thoughts about this. So that does happen in my book. I mean, one. Uh, not to like spoil anything or whatever, but one chapter, most of the book is from the perspective of Daniel, um, the boy who's grieving. One chapter is from the perspective of a woman. And then, of course, there are just many conversations um, with women throughout the book. Um, and I have sort of like a couple of thoughts about this, you know. Um, one is that it's just really helpful to read a bunch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, to me, I think just being kind of well-versed in, you know, for me, like I, what I was reading a lot prior to writing the book were just like kind of the like greatest hits of like seventies and eighties black feminism, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful. I think <clears throat> for getting a sense of like what it means to be in a tradition that wants to represent a group of people as humans, as complex humans, as well-rounded um, robust, whatever, you know, no, not simply like objects or absent or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think for that, it was just sort of like, you just pick up a lot of things, you know, just sort of like osmosis ish, you know, um, I'm not a big notes taker while writing though. Some people are, um, but I wasn't like, Oh, you know, to write such a character, I could do blank, like, you know, whatever Morrison does in Sula, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just sort of like read a lot. And that was really helpful. I think some of that is that you pick up things. Some of it is you also gain a kind of confidence in what I think is also important because ultimately, I think if you're vulnerable and honest and serious about your relationships with other people in the world, you know, with other people who are maybe in some way, like the character that you're talking about, maybe they share an identity position, whatever, you know, then you can actually kind of hear those people if you're really listening, you know, Um, you can hear that voice in your head, you know, and you'll know you have it when the person is sort of talking back to you, you know? Um, So that's the second thing, which is effectively like, you know, there are, 
for better and for worse reasons, you know, um, and for good and for bad, there are all sorts of like artistic traditions where people just try not to give voice to people who are not like them, not because they're hateful of those people, though sometimes, but in some yeah. cases, not because they're hateful of those people, but because of a kind of respect for being like, I actually don't know this person. I was in a very particular position, what have you. Um, to me, that movie uh, Roma feels very much like this, where the um, maid uh, is actually not given that much of a sort of like interiority. Um, and I think it's meant to be done respectfully. I think people have reasonable critiques of this, what have you. But it's like, ultimately, like, you know, if you know folks, you can kind of hear their voices, you know what I mean, in your head. And you just got to write it, you know, you got to like get to a point where you can like really be in it enough that you can trust that you can hear them speaking to you. I guess the third thought I also had is also just, um, yeah, make it real. You know, I mean, like, that's the sort of like, <clears throat> I think that like, there's this bit, oh, I'm going to sound so nerdy. There's this bit in Proust where he's talking about how like everything is autobiographical in the last book um, for artists because he's like, well, it's just not autobiographical in the way that you think, you know, you're not actu actually trying to describe an experience that you had five years ago, because of course you can't even really remember that experience accurately, yeah. you know, instead what's happening is like, oh, you just, we're like, oh, how does someone look with a monocle? Oh, I know. Let me think back to that image of that one dude I saw with a monocle five years ago and right. the way that the light shone on his monocle or what have you, you know? And I think that that is the sort of other thing, right? It's that like, ultimately, that kind of reliance on the sort of like real, honest and vulnerable relationships that you've had in the past can kind of guide you through letting other people talk, you know, and can sort of help give you the sort of confidence also that, yeah, they're robust, they're full, they're like contradictory in desire, you know, they have many motivations, they have like fleshed out backstories. And the other, sorry, this is the last thing I'll say, but it's like, yeah, if you say it out loud, and it doesn't sound right, when you're doing the dialogue, it's just not right. It's just not right, you know, and you just have to like, write it in a way that it sounds loud, sounds correct when you say it out loud, you know? Yeah. So I've been for the other characters, like in my head, I kind of have like a clear idea of, I don't, I don't know, like I have like actors that I know who are like, okay, kind of that's the type of person. And so like this one female character is more ambiguous. Like I don't really, I suppose that's what you said. It's good advice because I don't really know who she is yet. And without yeah. knowing who she is, I can't I'm having trouble making her sound likable and real yeah yeah i mean i think the other thing too is that like it's kind of fine if you write a bunch that ends up on the cutting room floor you know <clears throat> like if you have to write a bunch to get yourself there but definitely keep writing you know yeah. um and maybe you know the more that you write um the more you'll be like oh to me this character is you know uh, whatever Kira Sedgwick in the closer or what, what right, have you. Yeah. I don't know why I thought of that show. <laughs> just a show my mom watched a lot when it was on TV. Yeah. Um, so I just saw it a lot, I guess. Um, but you know, and you just keep writing until you sort of like find those kind of touch points. And then along the way, you know, you can deal with editing and cutting out all the bullshit later. You know, I mean, kind of, I think it's natural for books to sort of balloon and contract and balloon and contract kind of periodically, you know, and, if you have to write more and you're still not there, that's kind of okay. You're finding your way there. You know I mean? I think much of what we cut is 
essential to a story. It's just not the story that people need to read in that, you know, it helps you get to the story. Yeah. Is there one part of writing that you really don't care for? Like, is there, that's a chore? It's a good question. Um, I think editing is really hard uh, or like late stage editing in particular. Um, Early stage stuff is kind of fine, you know, um, because you have all these questions, you're exploring, you're figuring stuff out. I mean, that can be really hard in and of itself because you can feel like you're like, you know, swimming at the bottom of the ocean. You just got rocked by a wave and you have no idea which way is up, you know, you need oxygen. Um, That can be really hard, but late stage stuff can feel really difficult because, you know, as you go along, you sort of narrow in and you're like, okay, I'm going to write one book, which also can suck because, yeah, when you have a blank page, you're like, this could be anything, you know, and you have all this possibility and eventually you have to narrow in on the kind of boringness of this being one book. Late stage editing, I find hard because suddenly you reopen questions, you know, and you're like, I thought I figured this shit out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and now I'm asking myself this question again, you know, and yeah. um, to me, it can feel like whatever, having many arguments with somebody that you're dating with when you're having the same argument. It's like, are we going to relitigate the fucking argument about the dishwasher that we had five years ago all fucking over again? You right. Know? Didn't it's we like, resolve this? Yeah. It's like, I thought we were done with this, but clearly yeah. we not only are we not done, we maybe will never be done, <laughs> you know? um, which can lead me to a kind of despair. I think that that late stage editing, I find really, really hard, you know, because yeah. I like to feel settled once I've decided some things, you know, and it's worth knowing that that ends and it's necessary for a kind of confidence in the project that you're doing. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like everything is confidence. Cause of course, like if you're confident about something that's garbage, you know, you're kind for of sure. a problem, you know? Yeah. Um, but like confidence can be really important to your own personal way of like making your way through the world. You know, that stuff I think um, can be really, really important, but it's really hard because you also have to sort of, suddenly be in this position where like, I thought I knew some very basic things. And suddenly now I'm not sure if even the basis of this is good. So is any of this good that I find really difficult? Wow. That's poignant and more than just writing. I think that, that, you know, is, is this, is this good or is it me just kind of in my head, making it good? Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly I feel like in life, I have many of those experiences. I mean, like we're talking about, you know, where it's like, I thought I figured out how to manage my schedule. And then you miss a Zoom event. And you're like, damn, am I six? You know, <laughs> am I actually not capable of doing like the basic task of managing my schedule and showing up to where things are? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just an anxious person. and I just think too yeah, big. I'm, I'm telling you, man, like the last one I did, like I wrote Zoom 5 p.m. And it was at like... I think it was at like one. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Like that's not a time zone. Why did I write five? It just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I couldn't process why I got from one or whatever time it was supposed to be at to five. Like it wasn't a time zone thing. And like, I just randomly wrote down the number five for some reason. And yeah, when I wrote down zoom at one, I spent like an hour being like, how did this happen? Like, <laughs> not 11 AM, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> just sort of like, Yeah, it's just, it's so funny. You know, I mean, there are these really basic things that we think that we have together, which we ultimately don't, but it's just so important that we convince ourselves that we do, you know, because otherwise it's like, well, I can't ask every question every moment of every day because then I'll just never go to work and I'll never get my paycheck, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that kind of confidence in oneself is is kind of essential to going on, even as it's ultimately kind of an illusion, you know. And I think it's really natural. You know, everyone is so self-reflecting in the fact where they're like, oh my God, I'm so stupid about whatever. I remember I was helping someone put something away in like this little tiny cupboard and it was a bunch of glass jars in a box. And I'm like, there's no way to kind of tip this into the space. And she goes, well, no, you take the jars out, you put the box and then you put the jars in the box inside the cupboard. And it's so simple, but you're like, am I the dumbest person alive? Like why, why did I not even see that at all? And it's just, I feel like everyone has those moments and then they're just like, I'm so stupid. I find, I think one of my favorites of these is also when I like suddenly lash out at the, you know, at the world, which I think everybody does, you know? So like periodically I like whatever, we'll just like have a cup of coffee and spill, you know, a little bit of that coffee on my hand, on the shirt or whatever. And my, <laughs> at first I'd be like, oh, I'm so dumb. And now I'm kind of like, coffee cups just don't work. You know, that's just a bad invention. <laughs> yeah. Which like, honestly, it's clearly not like, my fault. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which honestly, part of me thinks is true. I'm sort of like, well, why the fuck don't we have bottles? I don't spill stuff on myself with coffee bottles, you know, yeah. or with water bottles, you know? But ultimately it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, no, man, this is on you, you know? Like yeah. pour some coffee out, do whatever it is you got to do, but just stop spilling coffee on yourself. You're too old, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, where can our listeners go to find your book? Good question. Um, it should be available, you know, wherever books are sold, Amazon, bookshop.org. Um, if you have a local indie bookseller, you can request it. You can also request it at your local library. And um, if you are an audiobook person, you can read it uh, on, you can listen to it on Audible, um, which I really like the person who did the reading. So if you're an audiobook person, um, I would highly recommend that. That uh, voice actor is really amazing. So did you get say in who the voice actor was? Like, did, was that what was that process like? Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? Because um, I, you know, you this is my first book, so I don't really know any of this stuff, you know, and at some point they're like, oh, we, uh, we've got a couple like samples for you. And I'm like, well, how the, why am I supposed to know? You know, yeah. so I gave you the manuscript. Your job is the one to, you know, um, figure out what's good or what's not with like the audio book. I'm not a voice recorder or whatever, you know, yeah. but actually it was quite clear, you know, like there was, yeah, one person where I was like, yeah, this person really kills it, you know, and um and I can hear it through and through. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm really bummed. I'm forgetting their name because they're quite good. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you have a little bit of say, you know, I don't think you get to like, or I didn't get to, you know, whatever, just like start texting people. I'm like, yo, can you audition for this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that would be awesome. You know, <laughs> the like really voicey, you know, actor as Gilbert Godfrey, Steve Buscemi. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. So, yeah, man, I want to say thank you for taking the time. Um, hopefully our listeners will check out your book and I wish you the best of luck with the book. Uh, are you planning on like doing like the whole book tour thing now that things Question. are yeah. okay? <laughs> um, you know, I've done a couple of Zoom events already. Um, I don't have any sort of physical things um, in line right now, but uh, people can always check my website, which is my first and last name dot com, Elias Rodriguez dot com. Uh, uh, for the events listing up there. Um, and then there are some YouTube videos of some recorded Zooms that I've done also if you just search my name on YouTube. Nice. Yeah. So uh, thanks again. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And we'll catch you guys again next week. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to anyone who, who listened to me ramble. <laughs> thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find us on all social medias at Inebriart or on Instagram at Inebriart6. You can email us at Inebriart at yahoo.com. 
And make sure you listen to the other podcasts on the Inebriart Podcast Network, including Bar Talk, Old Colony Cast, Retro Redoctopus, America's Hometown Horror Podcast, and our newest one, Theme Park Legends, a podcast about working at theme parks. What else? And we'll catch you again next time.